Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale Medicine graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is part of our series devoted to our September 2019 issue on organelles. I'm your co-host, Kelsey Castle, a second-year graduate student in epidemiology. And I'm Emma Carley, a second-year graduate student in cell biology. Later on, we'll also be joined by Amelia Hallworth, a third-year graduate student in microbiology. In this episode, we will talk exclusively about one of the organelles featured in the September 2019 issue on organelles, the mitochondria. All cells are composed of organelles which complete different functions within the cell. Mitochondria is a double-membrane organelle known as the powerhouse of the cell, which is a description often perpetuated in high school biology books to help with memorization. However, this description is not new, and it originated over 60 years ago. The first published manuscript to announce that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell was written by Dr. Philip Sikovitz and published in the Scientific American in 1957. However, research on mitochondria began almost exactly a century before this powerhouse statement was made. Mitochondria was originally discovered by physiologist Albert von Kolliker in 1857, and in 1886 it was first coined as a bioblast by scientist Richard Altman. Bioblast is easily a better name than mitochondria, yet here we are. Um, some records also credit Altman with the discovery um, or at least ability to consistently recognize and characterize the mitochondria. Uh, mitochondria were officially renamed as mitochondria um, by Carl Benda in 1898. Uh, mitochondria stems from the Greek word mitos for thread and chondros for granule, referencing the similarity in appearance to structures seen in spermatogenesis. In 1900, a supervital stain for mitochondria was discovered, which is called Janus Green B. Janus Green B changes color depending on the amount of oxygen present and around it, around the stain. Um, it changes from blue in the presence of oxygen and pink in the absence. Because of this, it is able to indicate the presence of mitochondria as mitochondria uses oxygen in many of its cellular processes. Despite the discovery of a reliable stain to identify mitochondria, the processes behind why the stain is effective and what the underlying role of mitochondria in our cell is was not known until many years later. Okay, so what are mitochondria doing in our cells? First off, I want to dispel a myth about mitochondria. So not only do high school biology textbooks perpetuate this idea that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but they also perpetuate the idea that mitochondria are small bean-shaped organelles. But in reality, mitochondria are dynamic structures capable of forming very extensive networks all throughout the cell. These mitochondria can undergo fusion and fission events. So if you have a lot of fission events, meaning the mitochondria are breaking up, then if you look at them, they might look like little beans. But most of the time, um, mitochondria are in these very amazing dynamic networks. And so overall, Mitochondria are way more complicated than just a bunch of little bean shapes floating around inside of cells. So Kelsey just talked about how these organelles were first discovered and came to be known as the powerhouse of the cell. But what exactly does powerhouse of the cell mean at the biological level? This basically means that mitochondria make ATP. 
ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate, and it's a very high energy molecule that our bodies use to store the energy that we get from food to be used later. ATP is made by a specialized group of proteins that all reside in the mitochondria. Most of these proteins are part of something called the electron transport chain. The electron transport chain uses high energy molecules made during the breakdown of sugars in our food and combines this with oxygen to create a gradient of positively charged hydrogen ions across the membrane of the mitochondria. The protein ATP synthase then uses this positively charged hydrogen gradient to make ATP from ADP and an inorganic phosphate. For every one molecule of, of the sugar glucose and six molecules of oxygen, you can get 36 ATP. So this process is very, very good at generating energy from the sugars and fats that are found in our food. Can you still make ATP if you don't have enough oxygen, like when you're exercising? Yeah, so ATP synthase, the very last step that happens in the mitochondria, only makes 32 of the 36 ATP that you get from every glucose molecule. The rest come from steps that occur in the cytosol of the cell, which are anaerobic and don't require oxygen. Um, however, as you can see, you would only get four um, ATPs if you were to just rely on that process. So making ATP using oxygen and using all these cool proteins found in the mitochondria is way more energy efficient. You can get lots more energy out of your food. Um, and I just wanted to take a second to talk about ATP synthase, that very, very last step in the formation of ATP, because it's one of my favorite proteins in biology. Um, in order to make ATP, this ATP synthase protein will rotate like a motor, and it's this rotation that allows for the generation of ATP. In 1997, some very clever scientists from the Tokyo Institute of Technology actually designed an experiment that allowed them to visualize this rotation under a microscope, which for me is absolutely amazing and very beautiful. So this is one of the most elegant and beautiful molecular machines in our body, in my opinion at least, and it is found in the mitochondria. So overall, this powerhouse of the cell is only one example of how mitochondria are very closely linked to our metabolism or the process by which our body builds up and breaks down the molecules that make up our cells. So mitochondria can all, are also intimately involved in the processes that make other important biological molecules, including the nucleotides that make up our DNA and our RNA. Although mitochondria are known as the powerhouse of the cell, they also play a role in other key cellular processes that don't necessarily have to do with uh, metabolism. For example, mitochondria are really important for apoptosis, or programmed cell death. Apoptosis is a very important process that is constantly occurring in our bodies. Apoptosis is really important during development, for example, in a developing embryo, um, initially when limbs develop, there are cells in between what will eventually become each of the individual fingers, and those cells need to undergo this program cell death in order to allow for each of the individual fingers to form. Um, in adult animals and adult organisms, apoptosis is important to get rid of any cells that 
may have gotten damaged in a way that won't damage the other cells around it. So during apoptosis, a group of protein-cleaving enzymes, essentially fancy molecular scissors that will chop up any protein around it, called caspases, are activated, and these caspases will begin to systematically break down proteins in the cell during apoptosis. In healthy cells, these caspases are in an inactive form so that they don't digest proteins in the cell inappropriately, so they must be activated in order to function. One of the key proteins required for the activation of caspases is called cytochrome C. Cytochrome C is actually part of that electron transport chain that I mentioned previously in the, when, for when the mitochondria is performing its powerhouse of the cell role. So cytochrome C is really important in one of the first steps of apoptosis. Um, so during apoptosis, the outer membrane of the mitochondria will rupture allowing for cytochrome C to be released into the cytoplasm where it can interact with and activate these caspases to allow for the progression of apoptosis. So essentially the mitochondria allows for a physical separation between these caspases and cytochrome C in order to prevent unnecessary cell death. Overall, the mitochondria are incredible organelles that are not only important as the powerhouse of the cell, but are also involved in many other key cellular processes. You've talked a lot about what mitochondria do in our cells. How do mitochondria affect us at the level of the organism? Well, mitochondria are really important for a lot of things. You know, they make the energy that we need in order to move and things like that. But one cool thing that mitochondria does is that it actually helps newborn babies keep warm through a process called non-shivering thermogenesis. I previously mentioned that when mitochondria are acting as the powerhouse of the cell, the electron transport chain will use the high energy molecules created by breakdown of sugar along with oxygen to make a gradient of positively charged hydrogen ions. So during non-shivering thermogenesis, specifically in the brown adipose tissue of infants, um, there is a protein called uncoupling protein that will prevent this positively charged hydrogen ion gradient from being used to make ATP, and instead it will be used to generate heat. So you said that oxygen is required to make the hydrogen ion gradient used to make ATP or heat. Is non-shivering thermogenesis affected if a baby doesn't get enough oxygen? Yeah, so babies who don't get enough oxygen can't actually do non-shivering thermogenesis. So along with all the other side effects that you would have from having low oxygen, they can't properly regulate their body temperature. So there are chemicals that are capable of performing the same function as uncoupling protein performs in the brown adipose tissue of these babies. These molecules are called uncouplers. In 1933, an uncoupler called 2,4-dinitrophenol, or DNP, was found to cause significant weight loss in adults. The rationale behind this drug is that DNP essentially makes it very difficult for your body to build up ATP because DNP is causing this hydrogen ion gradient that's built inside of your mitochondria to be used to make heat instead of to be used to make ATP. So your body has to break down a lot more fats and sugars that you consume in your diet in order to get the amount of ATP that it needs since so much of it is being turned into heat. 
So this sounds like a miracle drug, and you may be asking yourself, why isn't everybody taking this who has issues with weight? Why haven't why hasn't this solved obesity in America? Unfortunately, this is too good to be true. Um, in 1938, DNP was labeled as extremely dangerous and not fit for human consumption by the FDA. There is a major problem with this drug that you may have picked up on. Since the energy from food is turned into heat instead of ATP, there's an increase in body temperature that can lead to acute toxicity and death as a result of this hyperthermia. Is there a safe way for the uncouplers to be used as a weight loss drug? Well, regardless of what uncoupler you use, you're going to get this increase in temperature. That's just the fundamentals of how it works. So you would have to pick a dose of uncoupler that would allow for a amount of, you know, hyperthermia that wouldn't kill you. Um, but then you'd have to ask, you know, is the amount of weight loss that you get from this low level of the drug worth it. Um, and also, since it's very easy to take too many of these drugs, um, there's no way to prevent this hyperthermia side effect. And so it'd be very easy for people to take too much of this drug and have very dire extreme uh, side effects. So Emma has covered how mitochondria are very important organelles within eukaryotic cells. But to make things even more interesting, mitochondria were once their own cells separate from, eut from eukaryotic cells. The process by which mitochondria became part of our cells that we know them now is known as endosymbiosis. Following the discovery that mitochondria had their own DNA in the 1960s, the first work theorizing that mitochondria originated separately from the human cells was put forth. In 1967, Lynn Morgulis proposed that endosymbiosis proposed the endosymbiotic theory for the integration of mitochondria and human cells. The endosymbiotic theory states that mitochondria were early bacterial remnants that were engulfed by early eukaryotic cells around one billion years ago. So do you know how long it took scientists to fully accept this theory? In her report, Dr. Margulis put forth uh, multiple theories for um, endosymbiosis in the human cell. She stated that maybe eukaryotic flagellum or basal bodies of flagella in the mitotic apparatus were also due to endosymbiosis. However, not all of her endosymbiotic theories were widely or as widely accepted as mitochondria, namely because no genome has been found for the flagella to support this theory. Um, interestingly, the paper in which she first proposed this, uh, called On the Origin of Mitosing Cells, was said to be rejected by 15 journals before being accepted in the journal of theoretical, theoretical biology. Identifying the genes in mitochondria on plastids is what has allowed the confirmation that these are now included in the eukaryotic cell through endosymbiosis. There was significant debate in the 70s and 80s over whether there was an origin from within or origin from without. So this means, like, did, did these organelles origin, uh, originate within the cell or originate um, outside of the cell? It appears that in the late 80s and early 90s, consensus converged around mitochondria um, originating in, outside of the cell. And uh, this was especially clear after the full genome was able to be sequenced and we were able to construct phylogenetic trees to prove this. So... Interestingly, there are actually some eukaryotic cells that can function without mitochondria. 
So although these mitochondria are incredibly important, it turns out that it's possible for eukaryotes to exist without them. In 2012, a group of scientists sequenced the whole genome of a protozoa, which is a category of single-celled eukaryotic cells. Um, this protozoa is called monocercomonoides, and I apologize to those scientists for my butchering of the name. Um, so this organism belongs to a group of eukaryotes called oxymonads, and this group of eukaryotes live in the gut of wood-eating insects, such as termites, and appear, appear to play a role in the digestion of wood, which is wild. So these scientists found that monocircomonoides has no trace of any genes that encode mitochondrial proteins. Instead, they identified components that would allow this eukaryote to perform anaerobic respiration, which is oxygen-independent ATP production. Um, additionally, mitochondria are involved in assembling something called iron-sulfur clusters, which are important in the function of certain proteins within eukaryotic cells. And um, these scientists found that this eukaryote has a different system from most eukaryotes to assemble these iron-sulfur clusters, and that this assembly process more similarly uh, resembles the process found in prokaryotic cells, such as bacteria. So what about our cells? I know red blood cells don't have, any, don't have a nucleus, but do they have mitochondria? As Emma has alluded to, research on mitochondria has only increased over time. In 2016, it surpassed the nucleus as the organelle with the most medical publications per year. A large part of why mitochondria is still so heavily studied within biology and medicine is because mitochondrial DNA is associated with many physiological processes and disease states. Certain mitochondrial DNA haplogroups, which are groups of single nucleotide polymorphisms, are associated with longevity, athletic performance, adaptation to high altitude, and neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, mas and, and macular degeneration, to list a few. Um, mitochondrial DNA is discussed in many areas of science, partly because it is a line of DNA that is carried through our maternal ancestors. We know that we acquire genetic components from both of our parents. However, sperm only provides nucleus DNA and not the mitochondrial DNA. So the organelles issue technically focus focused on all organelles. Were there any other editor picks that you wanted to mention? Yeah, so um, it was actually, so when I read through all the papers in this uh, issue, it was really astounding to me how large the mitochondria loomed, even over manuscripts that weren't about mitochondria. So um, two of my favorite editor's picks, one of them was about lipid droplets and the management of cellular stress, and that one was by um, Eva Jark and Tony Pitan, um, which I knew, I knew nothing about lipid droplets prior to reading this manuscript. Um, but a substantial part of this manuscript actually also focused on mitochondria and how these lipid droplets are interacting with mitochondria to deal with energy storage and the amount of fats that are being stored in the cell. Um, and then the other manuscript th uh, that I really liked was on Leishmania. Um, and they are a parasite that gets into your cell and then forms a vacuole in which they grow. And this manuscript was looking at the proteins that were on this uh, parasite uh, 
this parasite vacuole membrane and how this is affecting this parasite-host interaction, which on the face of it doesn't really seem to be about mitochondria, and I don't think they actually mention them. But as someone who also studies an intracellular parasite, I thought this was very cool. And in my case in Coxiella, which is what I study, not Leishmania, mitochondria are incredibly important to the infection process and whether this is able to happen or not because both the parasite and the host still need energy. Um, so I th that was another editor's pick. Um, and then the final editor's pick was about um, localization of a protein into the nucleolus, which is uh, the part of the nucleus where ribosomes are created. Um, this one doesn't have a whole lot to do with uh, mitochondria, but it was also pretty cool. Awesome. It's so cool to hear all the wide range of topics that you can have in this issue. And it's crazy that so many of them somehow can be related back to the mitochondria. Yeah. Actually, while we're on the topic, I have one more I want to spotlight, which was Rose et al. And this paper, uh, as Emma mentioned, mitochondria are not just static little kidney bean-shaped things. They have these really complicated networks and they're constantly moving around and doing things. And so this one paper by Rose et al. is looking at the proteins that are required for making this fusion and fission happen. Um, really goes into a lot of detail about those proteins um, and is also talking about uh, fusion and fission and chloroplasts, which we didn't talk about today. Um, so if you're interested in that, that's another paper you could read. Awesome. I, as a cell biologist, I think that watching mitochondria fusion and fission is super cool. Um, love those microscopy docs. Um, so we have one more question for you. Um, so why were you interested in working on a Yale Journal Biology and Medicine issue that is specific to organelles? So I had mentioned that my work is on uh, intracellular bacteria coxiella uh, and on how it's interacting with the host. Um, and so that's, I, I really like a lot of cell biology. Um, a lot of my papers I read and a lot of the things I think about are very much cell biology related, even though I am a microbiologist. Um, and so when we decided we wanted to when YJBM voted that we wanted to do an issue on organelles, um, it was one I was very interested in. And I mean, I, I also like had the spare time to do it. Um, so that was how I ended up on this issue. So thank you, Amelia, for joining us and for like, walking us through your issue. And thank you, Emma, for contributing your great cell biology background to this, uh, this special episode. There are many other people behind this podcast that you might never get a chance to hear. So we'd like to thank the Yale School of Medicine for being our home for YJBM and the podcast. We'd like to thank the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Shout out to Ryan McAvoy. Thank you to the YJBM Editor Board, especially our Editor-in-Chief, which is also Amelia Howarth, and that also includes Devin and the deputy editors for the Organelles issue, which were Amelia Howarth and John Ventura. Finally, thanks to you, our viewers, for, turning into, for tuning into this episode of the YJBM podcast. We love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts in, by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Thank you.